grab your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Most of you know I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, and I spent my first seven years of ministry in an even smaller town in Tennessee. So Olathe, hallelujah. I thought we were, (laughs) I won't tell you what I thought. I thought rapture, something else, no. Thank you, Brother Tim, keeping me on my toes. So, Olathe is the biggest city I've ever lived in, which uh, to some of you, it's not that big, uh, which means Kansas City is a really big city to me. So, when I go downtown, it's an experience for me. Occasionally, my wife and I, we like to go have a date night downtown, try out some new places. We even try to get away a couple nights a year and stay in the city and, you know, kind of do something different with the big city life. We have a good time. But we always walk away thinking, man, I am not sure how people do this all the time. I am not sure how people live in the city. It's so big and noisy. It's so foreign and and different from what we're used to. For a short time, I enjoy it. But I always feel a bit out of place. It's like the people there know I'm not a city person. For example, when I drive downtown, someone never fails. Someone always blows their horn at me. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what it is. Like, I do have a little trouble with all the lane changes and stuff. And, and the one-way streets, you know, I have been known a couple of times to drive the wrong way on a one-way. Don't do that, by the way. Not a good idea. Um, but it's, it's not just the driving and the traffic of the city. It's, it's really the culture, the feel that there's so much happening and going on. And everybody seems like they're doing something. And people dress kind of different. There's all sorts of, like, sights and smells going on. And people ride those little scooters around. And then, really embarrassing, sometimes the scooters blow their horn at me. Yeah, so it's, it's a whole different experience. And my point is, when I'm in the heart of the city, I, I feel a bit out of place. I'm sure you've had a similar experience. Maybe you feel that way out in the rural parts of America. Maybe you've been to another country and you experience that feeling of being in a totally different place where the language is different, the lifestyle is different. That feeling, that that experience is really one that should be common to us as Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us that will be the case. See, from the very beginning, God began to set apart his people from the rest of the world. In Genesis, God called a man named Abram. And he told him to leave the land where he was from, where all of his family was from. And he told him that he was going to build a new nation in a new place. But that along the way, his people would be sojourners. That word sojourner, it means a temporary resident in a place that is not your home. It's a traveler, a wanderer. And this becomes a major theme throughout the entire Bible. This idea of God's people as distinct, as set apart, traveling through the world and never really feeling at home. We see this over and over in the Old Testament. Every time it seems Israel is going to settle down in the promised land, something happens. They end up as slaves from Egypt for 400 years. They end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Even when they get there, everybody else doesn't want them there. And eventually, the best expression of this theme in the Old Testament takes place when Israel is actually taken out into exile. They're captured and taken from their land because of their disobedience to God. They're destroyed, and they become prisoners and sojourners in a foreign land. The New Testament picks, on this same, this picks up on this same theme. Even though at this point the gospel was spreading all over the world, Christians still saw themselves as other, as foreign, as sojourners. In 1 Peter, Peter calls the Christians to which he writes exiles. In Philippians, Paul says, our citizenship is not on earth, but where? In heaven. 
In Hebrews, the author describes the Old Testament saints as strangers and exiles on the earth. And Jesus told his disciples that they would be in the world, but not of the world. So there's this whole idea and theme of God's people always feeling a bit out of place, like a stranger in a foreign land. C.S. Lewis, he described it like this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Do you ever look around at the culture and the world around us and think, man, this is so foreign and different from what I see and know in God's word? If you have felt that way, I want you to know that you are not alone. As I said, this strangeness is normal for followers of Jesus. In fact, if you feel too at, at, too at home in this world today, something is wrong. Feeling out of place has always been a normative experience for Christians. But God knew this. It was a part of his plan all along. He wanted his people to be different and distinct, and that's why he showed us in his word how to live as strangers, sojourners, and exiles. If you remember our series in 1 Peter last year, we talked about this a lot. And the key book in the Old Testament to guide us in this reality is the book of Daniel. Now, most of the Old Testament was written to God's people living in Israel. But Daniel is one of the only books written outside of Israel. It was written in a time when a foreign nation called Babylon had become one of the most powerful nations the world had ever seen. Like many other nations in the world, Israel fell to the might of Babylon. Their home city of Jerusalem was destroyed, their king dethroned and humiliated, their temple in ruins, and many were killed, and some carried off into exile. Last week, if you were here, our lead pastor, Pastor Derek, he kicked off this whole series, and, and we saw that amongst the very first group of exiles was a guy named Daniel and his friends. They were young men when they were taken, likely teenage boys at the time, who were selected because they were, well, smart and, and good-looking. And unlike most of the other exiles, this group of young men had a special role. They were taken directly into the king's palace where their names were changed and they were taught the Babylonian way. The goal was to quite literally brainwash and conform them to the culture of Babylon so that they might be helpful leaders to the king. Well, as we saw last week, God had other plans, didn't he? He used Daniel and his friends as a testimony of his sovereignty. And he enabled them to have faith in the midst of a faithless culture. And he was just getting started. So let's walk through Daniel chapter 2 today as we continue this series and this story about Daniel and his friends. And then I want to show you what we can learn from this book as exiles in our own Babylon today. Let's start Daniel 2 verses 1 and 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Each chapter, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, is a self-contained story, meaning they all have a similar theme and purpose, but they're separate incidents that happened while Daniel served in the king's court. Here's the setting for chapter 2. Story opens with the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, having a bad dream. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, dreams carried great meaning. So when the king had a dream, he had this whole team of guys who were considered to be specialists in the area of dream interpretation. Uh, these were the supposed wise men. Their job was to listen to the king's dream, to point out some of the images that he saw, and tell the king what it meant. 
But it seems like old King Neb was getting a little suspicious of these guys. Because concerning this dream, he asked for something unusual. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 6. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. King Neb, he didn't want just his dream to be interpreted. He wanted his advisors to tell him the contents of the dream. This was obviously something they couldn't do. They could assign meaning to certain symbols and patterns, but to get inside the king's head and know his dream, that was impossible. The king wasn't having it. It was all or nothing. He said, either you tell me the dream, you get rewarded, or you don't, and you get torn limb from limb. It's, he's quite an extreme guy, as we'll see. But after some back and forth, here's how his advisors finally respond. Jump down with me to verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king is as such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The wise guys tell him, they say, hey, this is not normal. This has never been asked before by any king on earth. If you're looking for someone to tell you your dream, you will be looking forever. Because no human being could possibly do this. Except, and here's where they set the story up perfectly. They say, except the gods. Even these highly paid and highly trained wise men knew that only a god could know the thoughts and dreams of a man. But unfortunately, this only made the king angrier. So he sounds out the order, kill them all. Take them all out. I don't want any more wise men around in Babylon. They're useless to me. And we know that included Daniel and his friends. If you remember from chapter 1, that's what they were brought to Babylon to do, to learn the language and the literature, the culture, so they could help the king. And, and we see that Daniel and his friends, they did, in fact, learn these things. God gave them all sorts of knowledge and wisdom. But even though they, they learned the ways of Babylon, they didn't adopt the worldview of Babylon. And we know this because of what happens next. When the news reaches Daniel that he and his friends are going to be killed, he says, hang on a second, what's going on here? And he convinces the guard to give him a chance to go before the king and do what he wants. And here's where we see the difference in Daniel. He doesn't run to his Babylonian textbooks. He doesn't run and consult all the things he learned in chapter 1. Watch what he does, verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What did Daniel do? Just like the other wise men, he knew only a God could give the king what he wanted. But unlike the other wise men, Daniel knew this God personally. So he said, guys, we've got to pray we got to seek the Lord. That's our only hope is that God will come through here. And he did. Look at verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel gets a vision. He got the answer, and he gives this beautiful prayer of praise. There's so much there. He's talking about how God is sovereign. He's in control over all this. And then he goes to the king. Let's keep going. Look at verses 26 through 30. Jump down. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Notice what Daniel told the king. He said, yeah, I can do what you asked of me, but it's not because of me. It's not because I have some kind of special wisdom within myself. It's because, as your advisors have already told you, O king, only a God can do this. And let me tell you, there is a God in heaven. And he has revealed this dream to me so I could give it to you. So what was the dream? We're going to be reading a lot here, so just hang with me. But look at verses 31 to 35. Here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and all the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. And filled the whole earth. That's the dream. Here's the interpretation, verses 36 to 45. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. 
So the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had concerned the future of world history and the coming kingdoms. And Christians have historically spent a lot of time arguing about which of these kingdoms this dream refers to. Uh, the traditional view is that the four kingdoms mentioned are, one, Babylon, which we're told in the text is the head of gold, uh, two, the Medo-Persian Empire, then third, Greece, then fourth, Rome. And we know from history that's the way things unfolded. And there are a lot of theories on the other parts, like the ten toes and the different metals and what that might mean and what that might rela- how that might relate to the end times. But I think spending a lot of time speculating on the particular nation kind of misses the point. Daniel doesn't give King Neb the names of the coming empires or exactly how this will all go down. Rather, the point of the dream is that the last stone will destroy all the other kingdoms. Daniel told us that stone is the kingdom of God. And while every other kingdom on earth is temporary, God's kingdom will last forever. That's what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see, that he is the one God, the one true God who has all wisdom and all power. Here's how the king responds. Last part, verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the king acknowledged the one true God. Daniel and his friends were promoted. So we see in this chapter that God used Daniel to show the greatness and wisdom of God for the glory of God. And he calls us today to do the same. Because as I said at the beginning, we too are exiles and strangers upon the earth. We too live in our own Babylon. So let me close this morning by giving you three things. Three things we must remember if we want to display the greatness and wisdom of God for the glory of God. Here's the first. Number one, crisis is the church's opportunity. Listen to me. Number one, crisis is the church's opportunity. The original crisis in the story was the king's crisis. He, he couldn't find wisdom or truth in his time of need. And I believe we have the same crisis going on in our culture today. We have people who are disturbed and broken and looking for answers like the king. So they're going to the wise men of our culture. They're, they're looking to the wisdom of politicians or the wisdom of scholars or the wisdom of celebrities and the wealthy or the wisdom of what feels right or sounds good. And just like the king, they're coming up empty. Because when you look for wisdom among the foolishness of the world, you will always end up more broken than before. Then the king's crisis becomes Daniel's crisis. He gets caught up in this because his life is at stake. And what we see as a crisis, Daniel saw as an opportunity. It was an opportunity for him to testify to the greatness of God. And he did that by showing that God and God alone is the true source of wisdom. Now, when we think of wisdom today, we often confuse it with knowledge or with common sense. But the book of Proverbs, which is an, which is an entire book devoted to wisdom, says this, Proverbs 9.10. says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We see there that wisdom comes from a relationship with God. 
Wisdom comes from knowing him through his son Jesus, who Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is wisdom in the flesh. That's what Daniel had. He had a relationship with God. And he took this crisis in which the world was desperate for wisdom, and he used it as an opportunity to show people the true wisdom of God. We have the same opportunity today if we will just open our eyes. Sometimes there are national or global crises. But if you'll just pay attention, you will find that the people you interact with every day are experiencing their own crises in their own personal lives. Your coworker who's having a marriage crisis, your neighbor who's having a financial crisis, your friend who's having a family crisis, your family member who's having a mental health crisis. These are opportunities to seek the Lord and to share wisdom from his word, to show that a relationship with him brings understanding that the world cannot offer. Crisis is the church's opportunity. That's the first truth we need today. Here's the second. Number two, God is the church's testimony. Look back with me again at verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, he says, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? In other words, the king's asking him, he says, are you the guy? You the one I've been looking for who can give me the wisdom I need? Here's how Daniel responded, verse 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Think about how tempting it would have been For Daniel to stand before this great and mighty king who wanted to kill him and say, hey, I'm your guy. I'm the wisest one in all the land. Look at me. I'm right here, bud. That's not what Daniel did, is it? Daniel said instead, there's not a single human being who can do what you have asked, but there is a God in heaven. Friends, that's it. That is our testimony in Babylon. As our culture looks for answers to life's toughest questions, we say there is a God in heaven. As our culture looks for a political savior or for the government to fix all their problems, we say there is a God in heaven. As our culture looks for pleasure or wealth or relationships to satisfy them, we say there is a God in heaven. And this God is no ordinary God. He is a God who created you, who loves you, who holds his life in your hands and who came to the earth to die for you. And that gospel message about God and what he's done through Jesus, that is our testimony. That's what we must be known for. Not our political views, not our good morals, not even the good things we do, but our saving message must be, there is a God in heaven. That's second. Here's the third and last truth we need today. Number three, glory is the church's purpose. If you look again at the end of this chapter, we find what looks to be a happy ending. Daniel honors God. The king honors God. He gets rewarded. He gets a place of power in the king's court and his friends get promoted. Don't forget, this is not the end of the story. Still to come are the fiery furnace and the lion's den, amongst other things. And we will see that worldly power and approval is always fleeting and temporary. And yet, for many people today, including Christians, that's what they see as our purpose. They want political power and influence, and they believe that's the hope for the nation and for the church. 
They think if we don't elect these people or vote in this way, oh, man, our country is going to be destroyed and the church is going to be ruined. And we've already heard that message about the elections coming up. I mean, just turn on the TV, all these commercials. But think about this. Daniel's country was destroyed. Daniel's place of worship was desecrated. They tried to brainwash him into pagan beliefs. Even his name was changed. His name Daniel, which in Hebrew meant God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects my life, which spoke of a pagan king, a pagan god. And yet Daniel's purpose was never to work his way up the ranks for prestige or for, pow- for power. His purpose, he knew, was to bring glory to God. And our purpose is the same today. This is why we exist as a church. This is why you exist on this planet. So that in the good and the bad, in the promised land or in exile, you are to bring glory to God. To demonstrate his greatness and his wisdom in all things. That is our purpose. And what an opportunity we have right now over the next few weeks of what is coming another election cycle. I want to challenge you in this season to be the church in Babylon. I know some of us get tired of politics and just can't wait for it to be over. All the signs to be taken off the the grass everywhere. But I want to warn you now, we're going to be talking about this some over the next few weeks because the book of Daniel has a lot to say about how we engage with the secular powers around us. And because as the fighting and the anger and the fear rages around us, the crisis of our nation brings an opportunity. This is an opportunity. This is our chance to testify to God's greatness and wisdom for his glory while everyone runs somewhere else. So let me challenge you today. What would that look like for you to do that over these next few weeks that are likely going to be quite chaotic? For some of you, maybe that would look like taking a break, taking a fast from social media or from watching the news to take a step back. Look, you already know who you're voting for. You aren't going to change your minds. So maybe this is a good time for you to take a break from all the watching, listening, reading, and scrolling and just pray and pray for our nation. For others of you, maybe this is an opportunity to live out your hope and confidence in God in a place where there isn't much. Maybe in your workplace, you work with a lot of people who are fearful, who are angry. Maybe in your family, maybe in your neighborhood, and you have an opportunity to say there's always hope. There's always confidence in God, even if the person we want to win loses. Regardless, for all of us, I believe this is an opportunity to demonstrate that our hope is not in man, but it is in God. It's an opportunity to not wring our hands or panic or get upset like everyone else will. But this is our opportunity to say with confidence, there is a God in heaven, and he is in control. No one else. That's our message. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.